Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you not only gave us Jesus Christ, you gave us witnesses that these great and awesome deeds be not forgotten, but rather proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to respond to this word, to this name, as you would have us respond in faith, in love, in service. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, of course, it's been famously asked, what's in a name? And I was thinking about this over the course of the week, catching up on some of my uh, reading. Uh, I was reading a New York Times article about, the, about Bill Cosby and the recent events, a sad, sad tale, a difficult one to appropriate and listen to. But the newest wrinkle in this story is that many of the universities that were at one time give, had at one time given him a kind of honorary doctorate are now in this difficult situation. Even our own government is in this difficult situation. Is Do we remove that which was given? Do we de-doctorize him? Do we de-honor this person? And the issue is this, right? The issue is when a university wants to give somebody an honorary doctorate, what they're basically saying is, I want my name to be associated with your name. Right? That's what's happening. I, I want my name and its relevance, its importance, to be associated with your name. Because, you know, we're both after the same things. Our name represents, symbolizes the same things. And now there's this problem because some new event has happened, some new information has been provided, and those who once honored this name now feel reluctant. And and the problem is that names are not arbitrary. Names represent something. Names have a meaning. Now, when you get your name, it may be arbitrary. But as you do things in life, your name gathers meaning. It receives new information. It, it, it is meaningful to those around you. It, it's associated with certain deeds and beliefs and actions and events. Names have meaning, and that's why when we hear certain names, we have a kind of instinctive response that is actually really complicated. So, you know, when I say Bill Cosby or, or perhaps uh, John D. Rockefeller or Margaret Thatcher or Steve Jobs, you know, immediately you feel, okay, I have certain information about this name, certain actions that they've done, and, and no one person kind of encapsulates the, the meaning of that name. You know, you react in different ways. For some of those names, you might look in respect. For some of you have worked for Steve Jobs, you might be a little bit more tentative about that. You, know, you have names that are, that, and they are associated with certain histories and stories that you remember. And what's happening in this passage for us is that many voices are starting to name the name of Jesus Christ. Many times the name of Christ is mentioned in this passage and each time it elicits a different reaction depending upon who's talking. And what's interesting about Jesus Christ is unlike many other names, Jesus Christ's name requires you to respond. England appoints a new prime minister. 
What is, I mean, that's big news, but what does it mean to me? I don't have to respond to that. I can be interested in the story, but it doesn't elicit any response because I don't have any direct connection to that name. The name of Christ, if what the apostles declares to us is true, the name of Christ prohibits you from remaining neutral. If Jesus is who he says he is, who has been declared to be by God the Father, then you cannot remain neutral. You have to act. And this text calls us to act then on the basis of the name of Jesus. It calls us to respond. We're going to look at three different sets of actions, three things that the name of Jesus represents for three different groups of people. You notice there's multiple characters involved in the story. It's actually pretty complicated as a narrative. Each group responds to the name of Jesus slightly differently. The name of Jesus requires a different kind of response from each. So we're going to take them in reverse order. First, we're going to look at the crowds. Then we're going to look at the lame man. And finally, we're going to look at the individuals that get this story rolling, Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. How does, what does this name, the name of Jesus, represent to each group? So first then, starting with the crowds, what does the name represent to them? What does it mean for them when they hear the name of Jesus, having witnessed, and I trust you are following the story with me, having witnessed what happened, how are they to respond to this event? Now, prior to this, prior to this moment, the name of Jesus was something of, an, of a question mark. It was, it was ambiguous. It was big news. Remember, this isn't happening in some faraway district. This is happening in, uh, in Jerusalem. This is taking place very near the place where Jesus was crucified. So this is big news. Jesus created quite a stir. Everybody knows the news, but they don't necessarily know what to make of it. And in fact, from their scriptures, they've got an angle, they've got a trajectory to think about this. Cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. And the Romans crucified Jesus on a tree. And so, so the, the gut instinct here is the name ascribed to Jesus, the name of Jesus is associated with shame. It's associated with defeat, with death. And so many, based upon the event of the crucifixion, would not immediately associate honor with the name of Jesus. Now, they may have questions about what exactly happened there and how did these things happen. Is Jesus a martyr that we should respect? Or should he have, in fact, been crucified as a blasphemer? If there's questions that are no doubt circulating among the people, but the name itself is it's ambiguous. It's hard to know how do I relate to this name. But Peter does not allow the people to remain neutral. They don't, he does not allow the people to kind of stand by and witness what they have witnessed and say, this does not impact me. If you have witnessed the power of the name of Jesus Christ, you have to respond. What Peter does is he says that this miracle, this moment of healing, this event that has taken place is the result, 
It is the inevitable and inextricable result of God the Father glorifying Jesus' name. And the miracles are not magic. They're not flash and bangs. They're not fireworks on the 4th of July. They're not created, they're not done in order to surprise you or to shock you or to prove something. They're done to tell you something about the one who does them. And Peter and John are very clear that the one who did this is not them, but Jesus. So what does the miracle tell the crowd? They have witnessed it. What's being communicated by this wonder, by this sign, by this marvelous deed? Peter makes it very clear that it is not, what is not being communicated is that we did this by our own power and authority. Verse 12. Rather, what is being communicated is that God has made Jesus Christ, in raising him from the dead... God has given him a new name. God has named Jesus Christ. God has established, God the Father has established what Jesus' name must be. And that name is the glorious Lord. God glorified Jesus Christ. If you look with me at verse 15, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And by his name, verse 16, by faith in his name, he made this man strong, whom you see now. What God does is he glorifies Jesus Christ. He glorifies his servant. That is a powerful statement. It's kind of the reverse of what you respect, uh, what you would expect. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Normally, it is the servant, okay, if you think about this from a biblical perspective, if you think about this just in normal life, normally it is the servant who is supposed to bring glory to the one served. So you're supposed to do a good job for the company. You, you, bring, you are supposed to, as Christians, bring glory to Jesus Christ. John and Peter know this full well. Normally, it's the servant who brings glory to the master. But what, uh, what Peter says, he sort of switches it. It's, it's very striking, and it would be regarded as potentially blasphemous by a Jew of this day. Because it is God who gets glory. And what God the Father does is he glorifies Jesus Christ. He is, God the Father ascribes glory and honor and praise upon his Son who has suffered for his name. So the sign indicates, the sign is only possible, the wonder is only possible, Peter says, because it is the result of Christ being glorified. It is the result of God having given Jesus the authority over heaven and earth, the power to raise the dead, the power. He is, notice verse 15, the author of life. It is because Jesus Christ has been named in his resurrection the glorious Lord, the author of life. 
the risen one, the righteous Savior, that the apostles are then able to do this miracle. And so the crowds, they see the sign. And what Peter does is he says, don't miss the main point. The point is, this sign would not be possible unless Jesus Christ was the Lord of glory. The Lord over heaven's and the earth. The Lord who would bring all of the new heavens and the new earth to perfect glory. The Lord who would not only heal this man, but the whole cosmic creation which has been distorted through the fall of Adam. That is how this power was done. And if that's the case, the crowd cannot be neutral. They cannot stand as bystanders and say, whoa, this was amazing. Those fireworks were great. I can't wait till next year. It calls them to a particular kind of action, and Peter specifies. Peter's a great preacher, and he gives you the main point, and he tells you the implication. He tells you what you're supposed to do. The main point is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Here's the implication. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter says, you're guilty. If Jesus is the Lord of glory and you, in your ignorance, and your leaders, in their ignorance, killed him, then you are guilty. Paul will do the same thing, by the way. It's not just to the Jews that this kind of command is addressed. Sometimes this passage is used to say, for uh, verse 15, you killed the author of life. What's the referent of you there? The Jew, his Jewish audience. So Jesus killed the Jews. It's not just, uh, so, the, so the Jews killed Jesus, but, it's not, but his audience is the Jews, but Peter will do the same thing. Paul will do the same thing when his audience changes. He says, you are culpable for denying Jesus as the King, the Lord of glory. So in Acts 17, Paul will make great pains to say, Jesus is King. He is Lord. He's been raised from the dead. And you and your ignorance are worshiping idols. You are guilty. If Jesus is the Lord of glory, if he is the author of life, if he is creator and consummator of the universe, if he has been appointed by his resurrection, the judge of all creation, then it means we cannot remain neutral. We have to respond, and we are guilty. Therefore, our response is repent, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to, to the Jew first and also the Greek. We'll see that in Acts 10. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you Jews first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The problem is the Jews have named Jesus. We have named Jesus failure, sinner, defeated, dead, and God has named him the glorious one, the author of life, the holy one, the redeemer, the judge of heaven and earth. You see, there's a conflict between how we assess Christ and how God assesses Christ. And so the call is to change your mind. The work of God as it works itself out in this world from every sunrise to every sunset, from every benefit that you receive, from every laugh 
every joy, every rejoicing over the birth of a child, all of those things are the work of God and they are a sign to us that God is the author of life, that Jesus has been raised and given the Spirit to pour out life upon us. And the call is then to agree with God that He is King. Repent. Believe. And He's a good King. He's a merciful King. So your sins will be blotted out. That's what the sign means to the crowds. That's what the name means to the crowds. How about this wonderful story which occasions the response to the crowds? What do we do about the lame man? What does Jesus' name mean for him? You see, for the crowds, the sign is a choice. But for the lame man, the one on whom this miracle has been performed, the sign is actually a promise. It signifies that Jesus is the Savior. For the lame man, the name of Jesus represents redemption. It represents rest. It represents healing. So the lame man also names Jesus different now. His his response to Jesus is different. And you see this gradually kind of take effect in the text. You know, there's this question. uh, You could see it here in verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. So faith in the name of Jesus has made this man strong. But one question that you might have is, well, whose faith? Was it John and Peter's faith? Or was it the lame man's faith? Because the lame man, he's looking for money, right? Like he's a beggar looking for alms and he looks to John and Peter and he clearly is not looking to them in faith to be healed because he's surprised at it. He expects to receive something from them, verse 5. But Peter says, I have no silver or gold. Hopefully there was not an awkward pause there. Hopefully Peter moves straight into the good news. But I do have something even better, right? But the layman is surprised because he gets something, he gets more than he bargained for. He gets more, something more glorious, more, uh, he gets something better than he'd ever hoped. So was it the layman's faith or was it John and Peter's faith? The text doesn't really tell us, but, at, but, but it sort of encapsulates all of those things as the paragraph moves on. What we see is the response of the layman is the response of faith. God initiates the healing. John and Peter initiate. John and Peter, we're not told how, but they make a decision. This man, we're going to heal him. They initiate by the power of God the restoration of the lame man. But the lame man responds in faith. He responds by going to the temple, rejoicing, leaping for joy, praising the God who healed him. We see the lame man believe and have faith. And what is, that, what is the content of that faith? The content of that faith is not only that Jesus is king, but that he is the one who refreshes and restores. Peter confronts the, the, the crowd with this truth. Jesus is the Lord of glory, the author of life. But the layman understands something deeper that Jesus has been appointed as the one who will refresh. These are the two words that are used in this passage. Uh, Verse uh, 19 to 20, to refresh, beginning the age of refreshment, 
verse 21, for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Sometimes we make the mistake as Christians, particularly as Protestant Christians, we can make the mistake that what Jesus did at his resurrection, what Jesus' what Jesus's death and resurrection was designed to do is simply to pardon my guilt. We're very guilt-centered in the Protestant tradition. And of course, we've seen that, right? That was the previous point. We are all guilty. But Jesus forgiving us isn't the only thing that he does. It's not the only way in which he redeems us. It's the first thing he does, but it's not the only thing he does. If you've ever been sick, right, uh, and maybe you're, you're sick, you're throwing up all the time, and you've got this medicine that you're supposed to take, and it's supposed to make you better, but you can't, it can't have its full effect because you keep throwing it up, Right? Jesus, the first thing he does is he makes us able to take our medicine. The first thing he does is he forgives us. The first thing he does is he welcomes us into the kingdom. But the kingdom is bigger than just our guilt. The kingdom offers us refreshment and restoration. It creates new life. Resurrection life. Paul will say it. You have been raised. It's not something that you wait for. It's happened. Peter's focus is on the future uh, in this passage, you will, he will restore all things about which God spoke. But you also see that that future promise that God will restore all things, that the kingdom will bring about a new heavens and a new earth at the last day, you see that that future expectation has broken into the present. And the precise instant at which it breaks into the present is the healing of the lame man. That's what the kingdom is about. Miracle here isn't just a sign and wonder that says, look, I can do something you can't. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also telling us something about the kingdom that makes that miracle possible. That kingdom is a kingdom that heals. It heals this body. It heals our souls. It heals the cosmos. It is a kingdom that brings about refreshment, restoration. It's a, if your problem is anxiety, it brings you rest. If your problem is guilt and fear, it brings you peace. If your problem is the power of indwelling sin that continually brings you back down, the kingdom provides redemption. The kingdom ans- is the answer to every problem that we have. And that answer is provided primarily in the future ultimately in the future, but it breaks into the present. So you can have rest now. That's what the Sabbath is for. So that you can have healing now, James 5, that's why we pray. Because God still works to heal the lame, the blind, the sick. You can have peace with God now. Because in his name you have been justified. You can have power over reigning sin now because by his spirit you are sanctified. The future has broken into the present so that the new work of God is at work in us through his church. That's what the lame man gradually begins to understand. These people care about me. They're not doing this out of self-interest. They're doing it to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been healed, not just for my own sake, but that I might leap and praise the Lord God. Because the new heavens and the new earth have begun. They begin 
with the power of Christ at work through his apostles and in the church. They begin with the preaching of the word. They begin with repentance and receiving Christ as the author of life, a life that flourishes as a seed planted even in this present moment. If you've been saved by Jesus, maybe you're at the beginning of your faith, maybe you're uh, uh, halfway through, maybe you are seeing uh, the, your body decay. Wherever you are, the call is, as Christians who have been redeemed, through whom heavenly life is at work in mortal bodies, the call is to leap for joy. If you're on the fence, if you don't know about this Christianity thing, if you're curious about it, your encouragement from the crowds is don't remain neutral. You have to make a decision. You've witnessed the work of God in His church and in His creation. The call is to choose, repent, and believe. For those of us who have been redeemed, who have seen the power of God at work, not only in somebody else, but in ourselves, the call is to leap, to rejoice, to go to the temple, to proclaim with thanksgiving the majesty of the name of the one who healed us. How about the disciples? What does the name represent for the disciples? What does it call them to be? The disciples, the disciples are a little bit further along than everyone else, right? They're a little bit further along because they've seen the power of Jesus Christ. They've named Christ as the Messiah, the glorious one, the author of life. There's some confusion about how exactly that would work out. But Acts 2 seems to have, have solidified in their minds, this is the work that God is going to accomplish through Jesus Christ. And he's appointed us to continue that work as we preach and teach and do good deeds. They see, they see themselves now as witnesses. And the name for them represents everything that they are called to be. Because they name Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and as the one who will return and bring about the restoration in the last days, they see themselves inextricably as witnesses to the name. It's a beautiful statement here. They are called to preach the word and to do good deeds to the end of the earth. They have that as a clear command from Jesus Christ. And you can imagine that if you've been empowered for that work, you know, you've been empowered to, uh, as Jesus puts it, to heal, to bind and loose. As we're going to talk about tonight, they have been empowered as apostles to cast mountains into the sea. They have been empowered over the created order by Jesus Christ. They can forgive and they can condemn that kind of power, I mean, we know it. That goes to your head. What do the apostles say? They wonder. They say, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? I mean, this has entered kind of our Christian parlance. This is something that we say so much that we don't really mean it anymore. But we say things like, oh, it's not me, it's God. This isn't my story, it's God's story. And yet, somehow we're always still talking about ourselves. What do Peter and John do? They, they say, hey, this isn't me, it's God. And then what do they do? They talk about God. 
They talk about what God has done in Jesus Christ. They point to Jesus Christ. They, they're very uncomfortable with the spotlight. They're always in the spotlight, but they're very uncomfortable with it because what they're trying to do in this moment is say, this is not something that we can do. This is something that God has done through us. So they're self-effacing. They point away from themselves their own names, their own glory, their own honor, and they direct it to God. Now that's easy to do in words. It's hard to do in truth. That's easy for us to, to express verbally. Oh, it's not me, it's God. But it's hard in that moment when we are receiving the attention, when we are getting the glory, when people are coming to us because they think we're wise or coming to us because they think we'll benefit them in their careers or coming to us because they think we might be able to help them solve some particular problem or another. It's hard for us to, at that moment, say, this isn't a you got to realize this isn't about me. This is what God has done. This is the wisdom that God has given me. This is the position that God has established me in. And the first step then is to acknowledge God as your Savior and your Lord. It's hard at that moment to call people to the one who, to whom glory belongs. Peter and John, and ourselves in a different, slightly different way, we have received authority from Jesus Christ. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We have been given the blessings associated with the inheritance of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, and many of you have experienced that in your lives, and you know that your marriages are better for it, and you know that your careers are better for it, and you know that your lives and your salvation, all of these things are better because you serve in the kingdom of refreshment and restoration, and they, they don't. Don't be self-righteous. This isn't you. It's the power of God at work in you. This isn't something that you have acquired. It's something that God has given. You do not boast about gifts. You do not boast in yourself about gifts that you have received. You boast in the one who gave it to you. This is from God. This is what God has given. Don't ascribe the glory to me. This is a sign that God is at work. We serve. We're empowered. But we do all things in the name of Jesus Christ and not for our own sakes. So, so what does the name mean? What does the name of Jesus Christ mean to you? What types, what is your response to the name? For some, it may be repulsion. He was defeated. He died. Paul says, for some, Jesus is the scent of death because he was weak, because he turned the world upside down because his followers are so seemingly hypocritical and sinful. For some, the name of Jesus is this new name that we name, and it's a delight, and we realize the freshness of the restoration that has begun. For some, we have borne the name of Christ for a long time, and we seek, having seen his power at work in people, we seek constantly to give him the glory and to give him the praise. In each case... 
The name of Jesus Christ must be our center. It must all be about him. That's the message of the miracles. All of the miracles are about this. Jesus Christ is the ruler of heaven and earth and is restoring all things to himself, that he may obtain the preeminence and the glory over all things. It is all about Jesus Christ. Where in our lives is that not true? What have we not brought under his submission? Where are we not giving him the glory and the praise? Preview of things to come. Your prayer life is a great reflection of that. What do you pray for? And more importantly, I'd say, what don't you pray for? We need to search our hearts. We need to bring our hearts to the Word of God and find those areas in our lives where we do not submit to the name of Jesus and honor Him as the Lord, the author of life. Because all things belong to Him, and He will give us all things in the last day. Let's pray.